This is this should be a segment where like we international relations scholars talk about American politics, which we know nothing about. I mean, we don't know a whole lot about international relations either, but like this is really out of our wheelhouse. I'm still unclear whether like voter ID or party ID predicts who people vote for. Have they settled that in American politics? <laughs> yeah, party ID does predict who people vote. Oh, it does. Vote. Okay, that's the strongest right. predictor of who people vote for. <laughs> okay, so we're on safe ground with that one. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Okay, good. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you doing? Today in Williamsburg, the weather is much better than it was last time we were recording. It's actually like, I don't know, in the 60s. It's high 60s today. It's crazy. 70, 70 something later in the week. I think it's going to rain, but at that least can't be good. The, that means something's wrong. The cold snap, though, has broke. It's been snapped, and the weather now is is looking a little bit more spring-like, despite the fact that we're only in the you know third week of January or whatever. So, Marcus, what do you want to talk about today? So, Jeff, I, I had a couple of people, uh, students and and uh, colleagues, reach out yesterday, uh, which was Tuesday, January twenty third, talking about or asking me about the so called Doomsday Clock, um, and they were asking about it because there is the latest kind of unveiling of of the clock. Uh, and it turned out that we are still at 90 seconds to midnight, meaning they did not mean to move us any closer to uh, doomsday, uh, which I guess is a good thing. But they didn't move us back and they didn't say, you know, OK, now it's 91 seconds or 120 seconds or, or something like that. So basically it's unchanged uh, from uh, the previous uh, lesson they did this. I'm not sure if it was last year. I, I don't know necessarily the intervals at which they they update this. Um, but some people were just kind of asking me, you know, like, is this a, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Um, because I guess it's good that we haven't gotten closer, but it seems bad that we haven't, things haven't changed. And so I, I was sort of thinking about kind of the doomsday clock more generally. And, and of course with the movie Oppenheimer out, uh, which I still haven't seen by the way, but you know, a lot of people have, uh, sort of made connections to that movie because there's, you know, discussion of it evidently. And, you know, so sort of like what the doomsday clock is and what should we care about it? What, what is it, uh, good for? Um, and so I was, I was trying to think, you know, it, it seems like we're, we're in a very similar place, uh, to, uh, where we were the last time this was, was discussed and it's not good. You know, it's, we're in a, we're just, not an active nuclear crisis, I wouldn't say, but we're sort of in a sort of managed nuclear um, situation in the sense that, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has talked about, you know, the use of, of nuclear weapons. We have other countries that have sort of hinted at the idea that, you know, using a nuclear weapon, uh, you know, would not be out of the bounds or the, the realm of, of possibility. I think that's the sort of underlying logic by which the the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the group that kind of comes up with the, the idea of what the clock is at the at the time, is looking at. They're saying, like, look, it's 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 not good that people are talking about the use of nuclear weapons. That's actually quite bad. That's quite dangerous. And that's why we're so close to uh, the the sort of doomsday uh, scenario. So I, I take it all uh, as a very negative. I think it sort of reinforces what we've been talking about the, on this pod for a long time, which is, you know, the active role of deterrence, active role of extended deterrence, the need for uh, diplomacy, the need for crisis management, the need for communication, the need for doing anything that we can to reduce the chances of accidents, mistakes, misperceptions, fog of war, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and if you look at all of that together, you realize that, yeah, you know, this is, we're in quite a dangerous situation with this with this war. And again, that's not just not one war now. It's it's uh, uh, Russia, Ukraine, but it's also the Middle East. One student did ask, well, 
since the last time we had this doomsday clock unveiling, it seems like we have another war uh, happening. Shouldn't that have moved the needle uh, or the clock hand closer to, to midnight? We can talk about that. Maybe they they should have moved it a little bit further if you think that we're sort of increasing the use of nuclear uh, use because of the war in the Middle East. I, I suppose that's that might be possible. But in any event, I think it's all negative. Uh, and I, I don't think it's good. And I think it reflects kind of a, a very sort of poor situation that the international system just generally kind of finds itself in, especially when compared to other periods of time, like at the end of the Cold War, late 1980s, when the clock was moved back by several minutes, like 17 minutes or 15 minutes or something like that, because states were communicating, having diplomacy, interacting, making compromises, signing treaties, uh, and basically trying to limit the, the potential of nuclear war. Seems like now we've moved sort of in, a, in slightly different uh, directions, which is kind of terrifying. So anyway, Jeff, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the doomsday clock generally or if you think they got it right uh, or wrong with their, their latest assessment. Uh, sure. So the doomsday clock. So what a, what a great question by these people who are, are questioning you about this stuff. Let me ask you a, a quick question, Marcus, so just to, to test your knowledge of the, of the doomsday clock. Given your deep understanding of the history of international diplomacy and the risk of new global nuclear war, when would you say was the time when the, the year when the doomsday clock was closest to midnight? That is when there, when the bulletin of the atomic scientists, you know, group of people who put this clock together assessed that we were at, at the most danger of the kind of end of the world. What do you think? Like, yeah, we got the Cuban Missile Crisis. We got like I feel like I okay, okay. So okay, I was just gonna say the way that you're teeing this up for me leads me to believe this is a somewhat of a trick question. I am gonna say that you want me to say Cuban Missile Crisis, or you want me to say, uh, you know, Abel Archer uh, when you know something like some type of, of nuclear, or you want me to say, you know, when Trump was saying my button is bigger than your button or something like that. I'm gonna go uh, now. I think we are now. Uh, the closest to midnight than we've ever been. That's right. Oh, good. I just did a quick, did a quick internet research on this one. I mean, it's not good. It's quite bad, but good. Good that I'm the I last right. two years, 2023 and 2024, when the clock was 90 seconds to midnight, are the closest that the doomsday clock has ever been to midnight. If you had to take a take a guess, what do you think the clock was set to during the Cuban Missile, Cuban Missile Crisis? Oh. um... I'm going to go with 11.51 p.m. That's close. So before the – so the, the the clock was not changed during the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is a kind of annual thing that the, the bulletin does, right? So after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when there were some confidence-building measures implemented, the U.S. and the, US and the Soviet Union installed a direct telephone line, the hotline, and then there was a uh, – the partial test ban treaty was signed after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the, the bulletin moved the – clock from seven minutes to midnight, which it had been before the Cuban Missile Crisis, to 12 minutes to midnight in 1963. So we are good. I don't know. I don't know if this is how I ought to interpret the clock, but what is that, like seven times less dangerous than now? <laughs> We're just going by, <laughs> by seconds? Yeah, no, I don't think that's the way <laughs> they intend you to interpret it. Uh well, but, I mean, this points to the problem with the doomsday clock. Well, I was going to say, it's also, it's like, I don't know how to, I'm not a smart enough statistician to know about the units. Like, how does it, like, a, like is that the right math? Anyway, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Like, it's time, it's like, time is one. Well, can I ask you one more? Time is one variable. One more doomsday clock trivia. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> what do you, when the doomsday clock debuted, 
which was yeah. uh, 1947. The Doomsday Clock was on the on the cover of the first magazine issue of the Bolton the Atomic Scientist. Don't Google this now, Marcus. I can see. I'm not googling. I can I'm see googling, what you're I'm thinking. Not making, I'm making notes of something smart that I want to say in a second. Okay, yeah, that's fine. So <laughs> 1947. So the the Bolton the Atomic Scientist started as like the newsletter of the folks who were working on the Manhattan Project and other um, kind of in the aftermath of World War II and was kind of put together as almost to like help with advocacy to right. reduce the risk of nuclear weapons, right? And then in 1947, it kind of transitioned to be a magazine and was published in print um, everywhere. I mean, it was always published in print because it's not like it was on the internet in 1945, but you know what I mean? So they, they it was published more widely as a, as like a glossy magazine. Um, and the Doomsday Clock debuted on the cover in 1947. And the first issue that was produced as a magazine, what time was it, do you think, on the cover okay, so in again, 1947? Again, this was like right as um, the world was like being introduced to, to nuclear weapons. And I'm imagining that the level of fear and the emotion of of – the prospect of global annihilation was quite high. So I think it's going to be very late in the day, but I'm also going to make the claim that I think partially based on what you said, this is ultimately sort of like a visual aid. Like it's on a magazine, right? And so what you need is like a good angle for the, so the time hands have to be. So for example, I don't think like a, uh, 1145 or 1130 or 1115 make for a good angle because that's like 90 degrees. So you need it to be, or eight one eighty. Or 45, you need it to be basically, uh, no, excuse me, not 45. You need it to be 45. It can't be 90, it can't be 180, it can't be 270. It has to be like a 45 or something to give the sense of like closeness and you want to be able to see the hand more, more importantly. So I'm going to say the first one was probably something like 1147 p.m. Okay. So the original close, the original clock was set at seven minutes to midnight. Okay, I'll take that. Because the artist who designed the clock, Martil Langsdorf, she uh, who was married to a physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project, Alexander Langsdorf. I'm reading now from the bulletin of the atomic scientists frequently asked questions list. We'll link to it in the show notes. It was it was set to seven minutes to midnight because she said, "quote It looked good to my eye." There we go. There was validated no, once again, and it was just a, like a symbol of oh, you know, the world is close to annihilation. We should pay attention, right? But there was no I sense that this that seven minutes was like calculated in some way, right? It, it was like, visual. It, it was, was just visual. a visual guide, right? right? And then right. from there, you know, the clock kind of took on a life of its own a little bit, and the editors of the bulletin started to kind of mess with it as like a way to draw attention to how the world was going, and so it moved for the first time. In 1949, after the Soviet Union successfully tested its first atomic weapon, first nuclear weapon. And so then the clock was reset from seven minutes to midnight to three minutes to midnight. And then it bounced around from there, right? So that was the first time the bulletin kind of used the clock as almost like a measure, like the New York Times needle for elections, right? right. But for um, this time for uh, global annihilation. Well, and to their credit, I mean, they understood like you can't. You know, it might have been uh, uh, sort of 
Like they wanted to maybe try to have it like 1159, like right off the bat. Right. But they had the inclination and the intuition, like things can get a whole lot worse. So if we start at 1159, that doesn't give us much. We have, we have 60 seconds left to tell the, the world about how much worse things are getting by starting seven minutes to midnight. You at least then have the ability to show change in a negative direction uh, and show just how like terrible things are, are, are getting. The other thing I'm going to point out too is, and this is, I want to make sure this is clear. It started about uh, uh, nuclear things, right? It's, it's the atomic scientist bulletin, right? Um, and by the way, it's not just nowadays, I don't know what it was back then, but now it's not just atomic scientists that get together and like sit around a table. It's, it's, they include political scientists and I mean, I, I haven't been asked, but you know, I know they include historians and political oh, scientists. You mean the group that decides what the, the, group what the clock decides. should be? Yeah. Exactly. They have like a little board that, that does this. That's made up of a, a bunch of people, a bunch of different kinds of people. So it started very much about nuclear uh, war for, for good reason, but now they do include things like climate change and bioweapons and, uh, other types of, of like I think they have like you know global health is considered like one of the things that they're they're looking at as well. So they've kind of like broadened the scope uh, more to like what are the threats generally that might destroy the world, um, not just nuclear nuclear war nuclear stuff. Yeah, for sure. So last trivia question. Okay. When was the clock furthest from midnight? That is, when were we safest? In the nuclear oh, age. I think I saw. I think I did see this. So this is cheating a little bit, but I did read something about it. I think it was in like 1989 or 1990 when the United States and the Soviet Union were signing treaties uh, to uh, reduce nuclear arms. Right. So end of the Cold War, 1991. What do you think the clock was set to? I also I know this because I was I, I saw it yesterday uh, as this was all happening. I believe it was set at 17 minutes to midnight. That's right. It's tough to get me on doomsday trivia. I'm pretty The good. safest we've ever been in the atomic age, according to the Bolton, the atomic scientists, is 17 minutes to midnight, which is like which I think is- to midnight. I mean, that's not look, like – Look, 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 Jeff. I mean, you, you know as good as I, the existence of these weapons just like being around, I think puts us like at least, you know, at least 1130. Right. Like the fact that there's a nuclear weapon that's like exists as a physical entity in the world, uh, despite what's going on politically, I think gets us at 1130 because it could it could blow things up. And, yeah, like when you start at seven minutes to midnight and then you have this tremendous, you know, sort of diplomatic effort, uh, you know, and lots of reasons for the end of the Cold War, of course. But like the fact that the two you know great powers that were the main nuclear rivals at the time that we were most worried about destroying the planet actually got together and say, hey, let's not do that. A nuclear war uh, can never be won, and so therefore should never be fought. Agreed. They sign the thing, and it puts us back, you know, significantly. So I, I agree with you. The sort of like, if you think about it in terms of the percentage of change, it's it's dramatic. But you're still looking at it from like 17 minutes to go. And this this is to me like fundamentally like the the problem with the doomsday clock. I think is like it's hard for me to conceptualize what that even means. Like, how am I supposed to feel? If we have seven minutes to die versus like 90 seconds to die, right? But that's it's like, not it's what not... it's supposed to be, right? I, I don't think it's like how much time. Well, okay. Midnight is a symbol of the like the end of the world. And so right. we are close to that end. And according to my calculations, we were 11.3 times safer in 1991 than we are today, according to the uh, the people who put the numbers on the clock. Now, okay, and here, okay, well, but here's my point. Here, this, this is why I wanted to get into this a little bit. I, I, I just think that the time metaphor is a little bit ambiguous and sort of like misleading, or at least kind of hard to understand. Like, it's hard for me to conceptualize 
like 90 seconds versus what's seven times 60, whatever, how many seconds that is versus, you know, 600 seconds. Like it's, it's, they're saying to us, look guys, this is not good. You are 90 seconds away from disaster. But that's a that's a, a metaphorical 90 seconds that's hard for me to kind of interpret. And I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about 90 seconds versus 120 seconds, for example, right? So I like I like the idea of the doomsday clock. And I like the idea that they're sort of visually representing how dangerous things are. But I just get a little sort of confused or I don't understand like what the what the point is in the, the units that we're using to differentiate like one state of mind or one state of the system from another state of the system versus other ways of looking at it. Right. So you might say like, no, 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 this is, this is silly. This time stuff is silly. Let's just look at like the number of nuclear weapons, for example, that have been created over time. And like, as that number goes up, danger goes up or look at like the alliances that have, have formed. And like, as these alliances have gotten more like the bipolar, let's say, maybe you think that that leads to more stability. Maybe you think that leads to more chaos and, and instability, whatever. There's other sort of metaphors that you can use to sort of visualize how much danger we're in. I'm just not sure the clock one is the most effective that we, we could come up with or that we, we have. I, I, I might be overthinking this, but I, I, I just have a hard time with the, the time metaphor when it comes to nuclear annihilation. The answer is, that of course, I'm being facetious here, that, like, you can't interpret the the seconds the way I'm interpreting the seconds, and that the clock, the doomsday clock is not the New York Times needle for elections. Right. It is not an analytic model of the risk of nuclear annihilation. It's just a metaphor. It's just a visual visual advocacy tool. And that point is kind of driven home by the idea that the first time the clock was published, the time on the clock was just an aesthetic choice by the artist, right? And had no relationship to an actual assessment of how close the world was to annihilation. And what the editors of the Bulletin have done over the years, I think, in a relatively skillful way, is tried to use this, this symbol of the doomsday clock as a way to draw attention to all the dangers in the world that we ought to be doing something about. And so they have made this into an annual event, the the setting of the time or the clock announcement that happens every January. They have a press release, they have an event, and they get a, a couple of news stories published every year about this. And the idea is to just draw public attention to the risks in the world. And you're right, like those risks have expanded over time. And it used to be just a nuclear thing. But now, you know, then, the, then there was pandemic and there's climate change is always a big part of the story. And so if you go to the bulletin's website, you can kind of read the rationale of the group responsible for setting the time on the clock. And it's all perfectly reasonable stuff, right? There are a lot of dangers in the world. But the idea that you can compare this decision to the decision to move it from 12 minutes to midnight to seven minutes to midnight in 1963, these are not comparable things. This is not the same set of decision rules over time. This is just the actions of the group this year or that year trying to draw attention to some of the important and the important dangers in the world. I, I think when you think of the doomsday clock as an advocacy tool, it's it's kind of interesting how they've they've used this metaphor of risk assessment as a way to kind of draw public attention to danger in the world and, and things we ought to be doing about it. And it, it points to this kind of broader question of how do you assess the risk of something that is a unique event that has never happened before, right? Like the end of the world, like nuclear like nuclear exchange in war. All the other various catastrophic outcomes due to dangers in the world. And this is kind of one way of approaching it in a purely qualitative sense. This group of experts gets together in a room 
um, or on Zoom or maybe just in a Google Doc. We don't know. And they talk about all the things that are going on in the world. And then they talk about what would it look like in a news article if they were to do this, right? Would that draw attention to the to this situation in a useful way? And they're at great pains to tell us this year that the fact that the clock has stayed at 90 seconds to midnight for two years running doesn't mean that the danger has eased, right? They want to be clear that we are still at a very perilous point in human history. Um, and that's why they didn't move the clock. And I think some of the news reporting on this is going against that saying, well, you know, the clock stayed the same, so we're doing something right. But I think that's not the message of the of the board. The, they want us to have this other message that is the kind of absolute look at the clock where we're really close to midnight and something needs to be done. Yeah, and I, I that was one of the criticisms that I was going to uh, talk to you about. I mean, I think part of the problem here is that if I was if I was on this board and I'm trying to come up with ways to get people to pay attention to the fact that things are going really poorly in international relations and the, the chances of uh, nuclear annihilation or some type of other uh, uh, cause of the system, some catastrophic doomsday event, I would be worried about keeping the time exactly the same for that, for that reason, right? Because one interpretation is, as I said, you know, a few minutes ago from one of my students was, is this a good thing that it hasn't changed? And I look at the world and I say, this isn't good at all. Like, I, and I can't compare, you know, 90 seconds to 91 seconds or 89 or whatever, but I can tell you that I don't think things are, are great at the moment. So there's this, and I'm sympathetic to their plight, right? Because they have to, they want to convey, you know, sort of level of, of, you know, specificity and precision, but they also like don't want to be in this position of like every year, you know, they move the thing two seconds closer to midnight. Like, so you got, yeah, well, they got to leave room for next year. Like, what if, what if something really dangerous happens next year? They got to yeah. Who, who knows what's going to happen, right? I, I think more more as I think about this, I, I worry too that part of what's going on here is, and I think we've talked about this in the pod before, but the sort of like normalization of threat, like. I, I just think maybe it's because we study international relations. And so a lot of the stuff that we talk about is, is kind of negative. We're dealing with threat uh, all the time. Like we're talking about nuclear threats. We're talking about, you know, misperception, perception, like all this kind of stuff that that is like threatening to either civilians or states or the entire system in some cases. Uh, so we're kind of used to it. But I worry that for the people for whom the clock is supposed to work, which I would imagine are, you know, sort of like everyday people uh, who are just living their lives uh, and they're trying to motivate them to like understand like things are they're really bad when you come out every year and you say like we're two minutes to doomsday or we're three minutes or now we're 90 seconds or I just worry that this repeated exposure to uh, threat will lead to diminished impact over time. Like I kind of feel like the doomsday clock was maybe most effective in the early instances of it. Uh, when we weren't used to it and we, we didn't see it every year. And it's like every year, it's like, oh, geez, you know, another, another bad year for nuclear security or whatever. Like, I just kind of worry that part of what happens to, just due to human nature is that we see all this bad stuff all the time. We become desensitized to it. Uh, we see it as, as it becomes normalized. Threat is just all around us all the time. And so therefore it's like you shrug your shoulders and don't know what to do. So instead of motivating people, I think it oftentimes has the ability to, or the, the, the consequence of sort of making it seem sort of habitual, and uh, people adapt to it. And so they don't, it doesn't motivate like pro social behaviors. Like, I'm going to go out and like volunteer or go work for an NGO and try to end climate change or nuclear war. Rather, people are just like, oh, another bad year. You know, it is what it is. And they, and they move on with their day. So I just, and again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the doomsday clock. I'm not criticizing the doomsday clock people that, that put this together. I do think all in all, it's an important, it's a good message. But I am a little 
little worried about the sort of desensitization uh, that comes with with not just this, but a lot of sort of efforts to show how just close we are to, um, you know, Armageddon or, or Doomsday. Are, do, do you share any of that? Am I, am I overthinking this? I hear what you're saying that from the perspective of the bulletin folks, though, I mean, they this is the lever they have. So they're pulling it right like that. This is they have a magazine that has a clock. Right? And, and people will know the clock and every year they can get an, some poor AP reporter to cover the press release about moving the time on the clock. So they're going to do it. Right. And I mean, that that makes total sense. That's what they ought to do to try to do what they can to draw attention to to what's going on in the world. And just to make sure that they don't lose what little leverage they have in this in this little game with the AP reporter, they occasionally move the time back so that things are safer than they were before. So to maintain some credibility for the next time that Russia invades some country and they need to move us to, to 60 minutes, 60 seconds to midnight. So I, I think that they're doing fine when it comes to writing up a, a, a little blurb about the problems we face in the world this year, getting some mainstream press to cover it and generating one news cycle that might uh, help with a little bit of public education about the risk of these things. The broader point you're making about are we as society – desensitized enough to these global risks that we're not going to make progress against them, I think is absolutely spot on. I mean, and, you know, we've kind of seen that with, with climate change, which I, I will say like my students in class understand, I think the importance of dealing with climate change and the risk that climate change poses to everyone. And so I, I, I think that that's something that uh, younger folks um, have kind of a better grasp on, but that I think has brought us really no closer to doing anything useful about climate change. There's there's progress on the margins for sure, but it's we don't see in this country a national movement to take uh, dramatic action to solve climate change. And you know, there are all kinds of reasons for this that that uh, that we could talk about. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of sensitized to this risk already, and. We were priced in a two degrees global uh, warming into our kind of understanding of what the world is going to look like. And we're going to have more extreme weather and we're going to have more catastrophes. And that's just that's just now like part of part of how we think things are going to go. And so we're not as driven to make changes that that are going to stop those outcomes. And then I think for a time just after the invasion of Ukraine, um, when I was getting calls from from reporters looking for quotes about the risk of global annihilation, because here we have a nuclear country, Russia, invading another country with NATO that NATO supports and the risk of nuclear escalation. And there was a flurry of news reporting about this. And then that kind of subsided. We priced in that risk and we're all kind of just that's part of our day to day baggage. <laughs> we wake up in the morning. Here are the risks of things. So, you know, there there could be a. A side of the plane is going to fly off today. That's just something that happens now, right? There's there's going to be tornadoes. There's going to be flooding in San Diego. There's going to be fires. That That's just how we we go about our day to day. And so I, I think that's inevitable. That's going to happen whenever we kind of have these risks that we've adopted for a while. And it's incumbent upon national leaders and leaders of kind of civil society to marshal concern about this risk into real life action that can reduce the risk for all of us. Yeah, that was well said. I mean, I think the, the other thing to, to think about too is is um, the category of things that the doomsday clock uh, kind of 
is part of, and I, I would say it's it's sort of like this this broader kind of category of efforts to get people to realize sort of the the real dangers that they do exist in the world, right? Because it's easy if you live, you know, in some in some you know small town in the U.S. You don't you don't think about nuclear war every day. You're the you know you're not if you're not paying attention to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, you might have no clue that people have talked about the use of nuclear weapons. Might not even really understand like what that would even mean for you uh, if there were nuclear weapons used in in Russia or or uh, Eastern Europe or even in the Middle East. Um, and so the Doomsday Clock and, and other sort of like pieces of art kind of like broadly understood like films um novels things like that can make i think better connections for people who don't you know think about these things all the time uh to understand like oh there are there are like real threats out there and you can start to imagine uh what what a threat actually might look like and how it might affect you so like you know such a strange love or something like that like these films that sort of like show the dark side of uh nuclear security um, and the day after, like what would happen if there was actually like a nuclear explosion, like these types of things, I think are a similar type of way to, to raise awareness, um, of something that I think people might sort of intellectually or cognitively understand. But like, when you, when you think about it in terms of like what the actual threat is or what that experience would be like, or like what, what, uh, might like legitimately happen. See, cause it strikes me that, you know, the, 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 the challenge for the people that make the doomsday clock, this atomic bulletin of atomic scientists, it's like, they're trying desperately to get people to understand like this, this threat is not, is not like, this just sort of like hypothetical, like make believe like world. This is, this is real. Like this is actually like a real potential threat conveying that in a world where we're so desensitized to all this stuff is, is very, very tricky. Right. So I think getting at it through, you know, doomsday clock, but also like art forms, movies, films, like stuff like that, uh, novels that can, that can sort of help reinforce the idea that this is like actual stuff that we're talking about here, not just like, you know, abstract, uh, concepts, which is sometimes I think the way that people approach them. To shift back a little bit from the doomsday clock as a kind of advocacy tool or public education tool, to the kind of other purpose of the doomsday clock, which is as an analytic aid, that is, here is an assessment by experts about how dangerous things are in the world. It's kind of interesting, I think, to pair the doomsday clock with other forms of assessment like this. And one of my favorites is uh, comes out around the same time as the doomsday clock, so they, they kind of go nicely together. And that is the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Survey, which occurs every year. And I, I enjoy it because I like, I kind of imagine people filling out this survey as they're on their private jets on their way to Davos for the, for the World Economic Forum, captains of industry and, uh, and like, <laughs> they get a Qualtrics like, survey and they're just like nuclear war one, climate change two, random famous actors and, you know, right. <laughs> just, just you know, this great mix of people. And I, I, um, there's probably more information about who actually fills this out, but they, they say in the report, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, the survey brings together the collective intelligence of nearly 1,500 global leaders across academia, business, government, the international community, and civil society. So no mention made of, of entertainment in that, in that list, but Fair you got to imagine that like Tom Hanks is filling out one of these for sure. I was not this year among the 1500 leaders in, in academia and elsewhere where did you fill out the survey Marcus this year? I, I, if I got it, it went to my spam folder. So I, I don't, that's right. I didn't fill it out. Yeah, that's right. The world economic forum folks, I've, I've been sending their emails to spam for years, you know, it's <laughs> just waiting for my Davos invitation, but they basically ask like, what do you think is going on in the world? And they, they have a variety of ways to capture this. There are, 
There are some cool um, visualizations of how people perceive the future in kind of a impressionistic way, not necessarily in a numeric way or a specific way, but one of them asks, what is your short-term or long-term outlook? Is it is it stormy? Is it turbulent? Is it unsettled versus stable or calm? And so you can kind of get a sense from these things, like just how is general perception of the risk of that things are going right or wrong? How, how is that general perception trending? And as you might expect, people are not super... People are not super optimistic about the future at this point in time, but it's hard to know when was the time, last time that people would have been super optimistic about the future, <laughs> like, given that you just took a survey that lists 50 different things that could go wrong in the world, right? And then they ask you, so how are you feeling about your short-term outlook, your long-term outlook? And I mean, if you can take this survey and maintain a positive outlook about the future, that's actually kind of a pretty impressive exercise in, in optimism. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, is this, is this the point where we talk about how like experts and, and at least don't really know anything? I mean, that's the, that's the other like problem with this, right? Like these surveys where, you know, I, I and I don't, I don't know the, the, the data source. I don't know exactly who they're asking, you know, but I'm, I'm, you know, kind of skeptical of the whole. No, I, I think we're, we're nearly at that point, but let me, let me do one <laughs> thing before we talk about how experts don't know anything. Okay. And that's just to like list off the top risks that the that the World Economic Forum respondents identified, and there's a long list of possibilities here, including things like the bursting of the tech bubble, which you know, I mean, that's a risk to their stock portfolio for sure. <laughs> so that I can understand, I can understand why they're picking it. But they asked people to select up to five risks that they believe are most likely to present a crisis on a global scale this year, and the number one choice was extreme weather with 66% of respondents okay. choosing that. Uh, number two, AI-generated misinformation and disinformation, 53%. Sounds a lot like our podcast so far. I was just going to say, right? Yeah. So these are both things that we, who were unencumbered by the uh, World Economic Forum survey at that point, that, those are also things that we picked. Third on this list was societal and or political polarization, 46%, which Fair you enough. squint at is similar to the U.S. election discussion that, that we had yeah. um, on, the, on the podcast. Uh, the cost of living crisis, at 42%. And then fifth was cyber attacks at 39%. Okay. There are other things on this list, disrupted supply chain, skill and labor shortage. Pretty far down the list is an accidental or intentional nuclear event with only 12% of respondents choosing that as one of their top five. Hmm. So it's just kind of interesting to, to put these things in context and then look at how they have changed over time. And you see, you know, some some interesting trends about particularly things like AI, which are kind of not haven't perennially been on this list and have come come from low down on the list to be to be something that a lot of people worry about i mean i would also imagine i don't have this in front of me but i, I would think that there's a, a a presentist bias to a lot of this right so I, I would suspect like after september 11th terrorism would be very high on the list for probably several years and then start to kind of like tail off and then be replaced by other types of threats oh yeah 100 percent. and then you know the same thing happens with a pandemic where it's not on the list at all then it's number one on the list, and now it's not on the list at all. Yeah, I was right. yeah. But you were you were mentioning, I think, the important point that none of these people know what they're talking about. Well, now that you told me that they agree with us, I'm gonna I'm gonna rescind that uh, <laughs> perspective. No, I mean the the only point I wanted to make, and, and you know, uh, this is well trodden territory for for lots of people who study decision making and and sort of political psychology and stuff, is that there's a tendency to to sort of think that experts. Um, 
that who study these these types of things for a living, or at the very least, like sort of elites who uh, are are plugged into Washington or plugged into sort of like the major economic uh, sort of centers around the world, kind of have some insights that lead them to better kind of understanding of what's going on in the world, and so therefore they make better predictions. Um, and I think the first part might be true. Like I, I do believe that. Uh, experts and, and elites who are plugged in might have a sort of better understanding, quote unquote, of some of the nuances of how things actually happen. Uh, that part I think is true, but that does not necessarily translate into the ability to make better predictions, right? So this is, you know, Phil Tetlock is the the scholar who is, uh, I, I believe, has appeared on this podcast before, but like one of the foremost kind of people making uh, this point in a series of friend of the pod, friend, friend of the pod, yeah, great, great, uh, great mind. Um, in the realm of, of psychology and actually, frankly, international relations now, too, because he's been brought into to so many uh, of our debates. But, you know, he, he has a series of, of studies where he shows that uh, across, you know, large numbers of experts and long time uh, uh, t- time frames, you know, experts barely sort of like are above chance in their ability to get uh, predictions, predictions right. There are lots of different uh, ways to, to understand sort of variation in those predictive abilities, right? So he gets in this whole thing about, you know, hedgehogs versus foxes. And so we talk about, about all that. Um, but, the, but the general point is that despite the fact that you're looking at sort of large numbers of people and like the, you know, the sort of wisdom of the crowds that people sometimes talk about, a lot of times, you know, experts just don't have the this the profound ability to tell us what's going to happen that we might uh, think that they do. And, you know, I share with my students uh, in, in, in class the fact that I get predictions about international politics stuff wrong all the time. You know, we have at William & Mary, they have these uh, surveys that you take from the, the good folks over at, at the TRIP project. We're kind of like asked to make predictions about things. And I'm, I'm always kind of wrong. Like, it just Because it's, it's first of all, I think prediction is hard, uh, but also the, the, the idea that experts, because of their training, might be able to make a better prediction than somebody else. It's interesting to think that for reasons that that should happen, but it a lot of times actually doesn't, right? And maybe it's actually because experts know too much. And so they're, they're sort of like, you know, going, going faulty in, in that, in their predictive abilities there. But anyway, I know this is your field of, of prediction. I'm not gonna say too much about it, but I just wanted to point out to the listener, the people at the World Economic Forum, and I'm sure they're lovely people, don't necessarily take their, their opinions other than when they, you know, agree with us as, as sort of like definites about what's, what's uh, going to happen and what risks are out there. Because a lot of times experts are, are no better at understanding or, or predicting things that are likely to happen than your, your sort of average person off the street. Oh, for sure. I mean, the way to use this survey is not as a guide to what's most likely to go wrong this year. The, the way to use the survey is as a guide to what a particular group of people think is most likely to go wrong this year. And that it's very useful for, right? And so when you when you look back over the, the years that they've been running the survey and there are other similar instruments out there in the world, what you get is a kind of cool measure of how worried people were about particular things. But it's in no way a good measure of what actually happens that's dangerous in the world, as we, we talked about, you know, the pandemic, which is something that people didn't have high on their list in general, although there certainly were some experts who were very worried about the possibility of a pandemic. We don't want to uh, diminish the attempts by those people to draw attention to their issue. But in general, the pandemic wasn't something that was on the list of these experts until it was happening, and then it became very high on the list. And so we can use this as a window into what society is concerned about, which as political analysts ourselves is a really useful thing to understand, right? I mean, when we think about how are people going to respond to particular threats in the world, knowing where they come from in terms of what they think is a risk out there 
is really useful in talking about what human behavior will be like in response to these things. What kind of support will President Biden have for an initiative that attempts to diminish the risk from climate change or attempts to diminish the risk from a nuclear conflict in, in Ukraine? And part of it, it goes to what is our overall psychology around how risky these things are in the first place. And that's what these these surveys give us a, a window into. If you really want to know what's going to happen, then you have uh, a whole another set of hurdles to, to deal with. And Tedlock's work and the work of others that look at kind of how bad experts are at predicting the future. What, what's interesting to pair that with is just how hard it is to predict the future generally, right? And so it's not necessarily that experts are bad at predicting the future. It's that predicting the future is difficult. And so we actually wouldn't expect most people to be able to predict the future particularly effectively, particularly these estimates of what's going to happen in 10 or 15 years. That stuff is almost impossible to do. The body of work that Tedlock and others have engaged in, in trying to think about what are the features of the people who end up doing a better job predicting wars or predicting other kinds of issues that happen in the world, what are the attributes that those people share that we could look at and say, okay, if you, dear listener, want to be a better predictor of something, you should adopt this approach. And there's a body work on this. Phil Tetlock has a really interesting book that is kind of self-helpy in its approach, but it's, it's called Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. And this is by Dan Gardner and, and Phil Tetlock. And this book follows a bunch of individuals who participated in a U.S. intelligence community-sponsored tournament to see who could predict the best. And the team that adopted the approaches that are described in this book was better at predicting than everyone else. And so the idea here is that maybe we can learn some things just in thinking about how these people think, because these people were not experts in their subject matter, but they did think about the world in particular ways. And so we can capture maybe some of those some of those lessons when we plan our own predictions about what's happening in the world. So I teach a whole course on this market, so don't get me going on on prediction. Yeah, and I encourage everybody to take uh, Professor Kaplow's course. It's a call one hundred and uh, what did you what was the title of it? Making predictions is hard, or predict, oh, predicting the future. Predicting the future. Yeah. Right. Two things I just want to I want to clarify. So I said originally the World Economic Forum is sort of a presentist uh, kind of approach. I actually think it's worse than that uh, for the reasons you just said. But I want to I want to put a bow on it, which is actually it's it's a past. It's like a it's like a backward looking thing, right? And like the, I think the COVID uh, part of it uh, is really is really uh, important, right? It was sort of like people understood. That, that the pandemic was coming. No, they did not. The pandemic happens and they say like, oh, okay, I'm worried about this. And this is something that has occurred in the past. And therefore I think it's going to have an effect on the future. And so therefore this is like a really important thing that I'm going to be concerned about. But then as a year goes by or two years go by, and it's not clear that there's been any like tremendously negative effects in the past for this thing, it no longer becomes like a threat uh, in the future, which, which doesn't make a lot of sense because tomorrow there could be another pandemic and that would have, you know, uh, effect. And so it's like sometimes when you're thinking about these risks, it's very easy to um, like look at, at what has happened, particularly what's happened in the recent past and sort of make projections based on that simply because it happened. It's already it's already done. And so you're like looking backwards uh, in terms of making your forward uh, forecast, which I think can be uh, a little bit dangerous. But this leads me to one last question I have, uh, Jeff, and I want to get your your take on this. Is the doomsday clock a prediction? No, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I, I think it is an assessment 
right? Oh, well, it depends on how you're going to. So uh, the first and foremost, it's a public advocacy tool, public sure. education tool. We agree, we agree on that. Yeah. Right. But, but from the perspective of the, the folks who are thinking real hard about what ought the number to be, what time ought it to be on the clock this year? I think they're going through a kind of analytic assessment exercise. They're saying, okay, in the grand scheme of things, how risky is the world right now? And they're not predicting that the world is going to end this year. They're just telling us, here's the level of risk. And and this is a really fraught exercise because, as we've talked about many times, we don't have a lot of examples of the world ending to draw on when we think about how do you judge the risk of the world ending. And so, you know, there are all kinds of problems methodologically with thinking about this question. And I think they're doing the best they can. They're substantive experts with some information about the dangers that are out there. And they're saying, okay, well, we're going to call it 90 seconds to midnight. That's the way we're going to interpret it. But it's not a prediction. And the the Davos, the World Economic Forum uh, survey is not a prediction either, right? It's it's a it's an assessment of, well, maybe some parts of it are a prediction, but it's a state of the world's anxiety about particular issues, right? Which which are the issues that you're most worried about this year? Is this another way to to think about it, even if the questions aren't always framed in that way, capturing the collective psychology of this group of folks on their private jets as they head to as they head to Davos. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get into a whole debate here about what prediction is, but I, I I see what you're saying about the doomsday clock, but it's also like by the very nature of creating risk analysis, you're like making a predictive exercise. Like you're saying, like here's what I here's what I am anticipating, like risks to be. Uh, in the in the future, right? Because they're not saying like, um, I, here were the risks that we just had. They're saying like, no, ninety seconds to midnight is by definition like because this gets back to my like metaphor. Time might not be the right way of thinking about this, but they're like, there is time moving forward in the future. We anticipate bad things, and that's why it's ninety seconds to midnight. So to me, they are making a prediction, not in the sort of like normal sense of the word, I guess, like not in the sort of like we anticipate that the world is going to end this year. But it seems to me like they are saying, like, given the risks that we as atomic scientists and scholars or whatever think about in, in the future, we are now closer to uh, the end of the world than we were before or or not or whatever. That seems to be like a predictive exercise. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe we're splitting hairs here. But it's, it's, I, I'm going to go on a limb and make the argument that I think the doomsday clock is a, is a prediction of a type. Not the, the sort of like, I predict that Detroit's going to lose the, the, the NFC Championship game, but a prediction nonetheless, because it's making a forecast about the future that involves risk assessment of, of likely threats, not in the past, but moving forward. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, maybe there's, there's some element of, of that as well. I mean, to my way of thinking, what they're saying is today, the day the clock was set, here's how close we are to global annihilation. <laughs> it's, it's a kind of statement about present day probability which maybe built into that is some sense of a of a forward-looking answer. I just had a somewhat brilliant thought, which is that another way of thinking about the, the doomsday clock is that it serves as sort of like a, almost like a meteorological forecast, right? It's, it's saying like, look, based on what we're seeing current trends, like current weather patterns in the Midwest, the clouds are like this, whatever, the statistics and everything else says that by the time it's going to get to the Northeast or the Mid-Atlantic, we're expecting some pretty rough stuff ahead, right? It doesn't necessarily mean it's not, it's going to be, it's going to happen that way. But like the prediction is like, we are, we're in for some rough, rough kind of weather, rough, rough terrain. So it seems to me like the clock is basically saying like, based on all of the things that have happened in the world up until this point right now, the future 
does not look all that great to us. Like we got 90 seconds is, is a way of saying we're in for some choppy weather, we think, right? And for that reason, you people need to get off your butts and go do something about it, right? So it's kind of right. like that's the, that's the difference between the weather. It's like you can't control the weather. But at least here they're saying this is social, this is political, this is ideational. You, you guys can do something if you choose to. So go do something, right? But it is it is sort of a forecast. We need to change our ways or we will suffer the consequences. Right. It's right? a forecast is, or a prediction of, of a type because it's saying like right. if nothing changes, we're we're in for some bad stuff. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think that's fair. I'm not I'm not gonna quibble okay. with the, the definition of uh, of a prediction here. But <laughs> and I'm sure um, it's fascinating to the listener, but I, I just I wanted to, you know, get your take on that sort of a I guess epistemological point. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be fun if the if the doomsday clock folks were like were framed it in the form of a prediction, right? Right. Like there's a a thirty out of how many seconds are in? <laughs> how many the seconds are in an hour? Thirty out of thirty six hundred chance that we all die this year. I think that would be, you know, that's a different approach to, to take. I think <laughs> what they're doing is maybe slightly more subtle than that, but. Uh, yeah, maybe there's a maybe there's a prediction. Well, and also if they're as, as as if they're being good predictors, they would have to assess a confidence interval to that too, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, so it's like I'm thirty percent confident that we have a thirty percent chance uh, that we're all gonna. Die. They should do a version of the clock with the confidence bars around right. the second hand. Just to, that's actually kind of that's actually a great idea. Yeah, yeah, great idea. I'll, I'll work that up in in my AI with the AI AI help. Well, Marcus, I think maybe we should leave it there. We, uh, we really, <laughs> I, I was skeptical that we could do an entire episode on the, on the doomsday clock. And I think <laughs> we squeeze a lot of out of the, the one idea that we had for today was good. Well, you know, I think this just drives home for me the importance of having our listeners send us some questions. So please reach out to us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk to leave us a, a voicemail, a question, a comment. Uh, let us know what you'd like us to talk about or else you may get another episode on on the Doomsday Clock. So you don't want that. Uh, also, you can support the podcast by going to cheaptalk.shop and purchasing a Cheap Talk t-shirt. Uh, you can get one with a AI image of Marcus's face on it, which I uh, highly recommend that one. Or there's always the, the very popular Balloon Corner hoodie that I that I can strongly recommend as well. Marcus, have you been wearing your Balloon Corner hoodie around town? No, I haven't, but uh, my wife has and reports like all good comments so far uh, about Balloon Corner sweatshirt. So I think that's good. I, I tend to wear my other apparel. So I, it's a little creepy to wear a T-shirt of your face uh, on it. But so far, no one's actually said to me that is you. So, you know, maybe they, they're not making the connection. If we, if we run into a, if I run into a listener, uh, maybe they will make the connection for me. Uh, the other thing I will say is that there is – if you prefer more kind of subtle – uh, clothing, the t-shirts that just have cheap talk, I think are actually quite lovely, you know, because that's, that's so vague and ambiguous that it's a natural sort of discussion starter. Like if you're in an elevator with somebody and they say to you, you know, what's, what's cheap talk, you can go down, you know, in 60 seconds, you can say exactly what it is, is great podcast, award-winning, et cetera. And then you never know where that social interaction is going to lead to. I mean, you could get a job based on that conversation. So I recommend the cheap talk, uh, 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 apparel for the, for the folks who just kind of want a more subtle, uh, advertisement for our podcast, not the sort of countries or people or balloon corner, which is more sort of an inside knowledge type of, of uh, framing. Yeah. I have one of the, the cheap talk word mark ones that just say cheap talk. Um, and when I wear it around town, start a lot of great conversations. Um, I've gotten zero jobs based on it, but you never know. There's always, there's always tomorrow. You there's hope, only, there's only you know. so much magic a t-shirt can do. You know? Yeah, that's right. There's only so much they, to make up for my, my right. lack of qualification for our Precisely. Jobs. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Marcus. Um, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.
What do you have to say about Bill Belichick? You want to put like a, a cap on the on the end of an era for the for the Patriots? Yeah. As a, as a, everyone knows, you're a big Patriots fan, big Boston sports fan generally. I got a lot to say about Bill Belichick. I think um, Bill Belichick is one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach uh, ever uh, in the NFL. I think it's up there like Vince Lombardi, like those types of people. Um, I think Bill Belichick had an amazing run with the New England Patriots. The only place, by the way, that he really had any level of success, like if you think about like his overall record and, and playoff wins and Super Bowls and stuff like that, all came with the Patriots. And it also all happened to come with uh, Tom Brady being the quarterback, right? And so, um, coincidence things, or or well, this is this is the thing. It's like correlation, causation, whatever. Like you know, when you have the best quarterback potentially that's also ever lived, and the one of the best coaches, if not the best coach to have ever lived, it's kind of tricky to, to sort of disaggregate like who who in that model, like which one's more important. Like, but I think the fact that uh, Tom Brady left the Patriots. And not only left the Patriots, but it actually kind of pushed out. Like, if you look at some of the reporting, I mean, Bill Belichick basically was under the impression that Tom Brady couldn't play anymore, uh, and he wanted to move on. And at first, he was going to try, you know, Garoppolo, and then that didn't, you know, the whole whole backstory there. But he basically pushed Tom Brady out. Tom Brady goes to Tampa Bay and is like, I can still play. Uh, and frankly, played a lot better for Tampa Bay than he did in the last couple of years they played with the Patriots. But nevertheless, goes to Tampa Bay, wins a Super Bowl. Uh, and now Bill Belichick is in this unfortunate position of having, I think, to kind of prove something to not, not you know, the naysayer who's saying he's not a good coach. Everybody says he's a good coach. But if he wants to sort of cement his legacy as like the best ever or be in the, you know, the discussion, the running for that, I think a lot of people would argue that he needs to win without Tom Brady. And... As we've seen over the last couple seasons, when he ha- doesn't have Tom Brady, the team stinks, you know, and it stinks partially because the players they don't they have are no good, uh, or they're not as good as you need to be to be competitive in the NFL. Um, but it also leads to a question of whether you know Bill Belichick is actually as good as people think, and maybe you know Tom Brady was was covering up a lot of flaws uh, because he had this like magical ability to pull games out of the out of the fire. When you lose that. You know, then all the flaws become magnified and you start to see the warts and all that kind of stuff. So I think Bill Belichick, uh, the, the time was right for him to go. Like he, he is sort of his shtick had worn thin in New England. Like for the listener who doesn't know about Bill Belichick, he, he holds these press conferences. Like he's very sort of surly, uh, kind of like antagonistic with reporters. He's, he's infamous for like not revealing like virtually anything about about players and their injuries and who's going to start and who's not going to start to the point where – uh, this past season where they were like terrible and had like a losing record out of playoff contention. He wouldn't even answer in a press conference, like the most basic questions about who was going to play in the, in the next game as if they were like nuclear code security or something like that. The whole thing just kind of had worn and worn thin for, for most fans in new England. And I think it was time to, to sort of part ways and, and restart. I'm a little surprised to be honest with you, the Dallas Cowboys after they stunk uh, against the Packers decided to re up uh, or not re up, but, not fire, not, Mike not make McCarthy. a change. Yeah, yeah, because he had a year left on his contract, and they said, "Okay, we're not going to fire you." Bill Belichick was sitting there at home, I think, waiting for a phone call from from uh, what's his name, Jimmy Jones, John Jones. Yeah, who's the, who's the owner? Whoever the owner of the Cowboys is, the big flamboyant sort of big spender. Like I, I would have thought that uh, that would be the perfect fit for for Belichick and for that that team, which is actually like not a bad team. Like they're not great. But with a couple tweaks and a good coach, they could easily go to the Super Bowl, I think. Uh, so you would have thought maybe like a change and Belichick going to, to uh, 
going to Dallas would have made a lot of sense. But anyway, I think, and to sum up, sum it up, I think Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick is a great coach. I think the, the New England Patriots um, had a, a magical run, maybe the best run ever. Uh, we may not see another kind of dynasty like that. I mean, just like the the success that Bill Belichick had in New England is un, unparalleled. Um, but you know, all things, all good things come to an end, and it was time for them to to part. But I do think for his legacy, I think he's going to have to win another Super Bowl uh, without Tom Brady being on the team. Yeah, no, I, I, the the pressure's on for the for the next gig. Now, I'm not sure if this pod is going to come out uh, before or after this game. That's going to depend on how quickly you turn this around uh, from your editing uh, perspective. And we've covered a lot of territory today, so there's going to be a lot of editing to do. I'm, I'm expecting you think that the Detroit Lions are going to lose to the San Francisco 49ers. Is that right? I mean, you can't go into Sunday expecting to lose. You got to believe, right? Well, you're, you're not gotta... going into anything. I mean, you're you're going to sit at home and watch on your TV, but... <laughs> Yeah, so I think point. it's okay if you think they're going to lose. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody. That's not going to change. I mean, it, quantum uh, quantum physics, like Jeff Capital thinking they're going to lose, have some effect on Detroit. Unlikely, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, I'll show you my DraftKings bet right here. But I mean, I'm not <laughs> uh, not tremendously optimistic. The the Forty ers So for those who haven't been following, who are not part of Detroit Lions Nation, like I am, uh, it's been a magical run for the Lions. This is the the most success the Lions team has had in my lifetime. I guess right. Yeah, the Lions have never been to the Super Bowl. Um, and so, you know, to win this weekend against the 49ers would, would put them in the Super Bowl for the first time. So it, that would be uh, amazing for, for this this team and this fan base that has suffered numerous indignities over the years, Marcus. It's been a tough run to be a Lions fan. And so, uh, you know, the success they've had this year feels all the sweeter because of the because of the long journey through the darkness that we we had to make to get here. But yeah, the 49ers are going to be tough. And so I'm not tremendously optimistic. I think I was looking at the line. The line is not good. Like it's, it's, uh, the, the prognosticators don't give the Lions much of a chance here. But, you know, any given Sunday, you know, anything can happen. So I am hopeful that, uh, the Lions will have a impressive showing and, and give the 49ers a run for their money on Sunday. All right, Jeff, I have a very important question for you. So you are the coach of the Lions. It's the fourth quarter. You got about, I don't know, let's say six, seven, eight minutes left. You're down by 15, okay? You score a touchdown. Do you kick the extra point or do you go <laughs> for the two-point conversion? What What is Jeff Kaplow doing in that high-stakes moment in the fourth quarter, NFC Championship game? You're losing. You're losing by quite a bit, and you have to make this decision. The guy in the microphone says to you, what are we doing? What are we kicking the extra point? Or are we doing the, the two-point conversion? What are you what are you I doing? guess I understand the reason to go for two in this in this situation. But um as I texted you during last week's game when uh when Tampa Bay decided to uh go for, go for two on that first score, I don't know. Like I, I I feel like there might also be a momentum issue here, right? Like you you miss that you get if you kick it i don't know i don't know i i i don't want to argue with the analytics right because i'm a i'm a numbers guy and you can't let your gut feeling about what to do in a particular situation override you know you don't want your anecdote to override the the data and so right, I, and this is and this is getting back to our previous conversation and this is also what bill belichick was great at i mean he would do seemingly crazy things including like drop kicks and things that people haven't done in the nfl for like 60 years because some guy in the data analytics room at, at, at gillette stadium said like there is a 0.05 percent higher chance that we're going to score or win this game if you do this weird rule that no one's ever heard of before 
to 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 increase our, our probability that we're going to win. And he was all about that. So he's like, even if this looks crazy to you, the watcher, the viewer at home, this is actually statistically uh, the better way to go. But see, this I think is a fascinating. Uh, uh, sort of like quantitative versus maybe more qualitative way of looking at this. To me, you said it. It's like momentum, but it's also like psychological. Like if you go for that two-point conversion and you and you miss it, just like right. it's like the the it's weight crushing. against you. Yeah. It's like crushing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, oh geez. Like now I have to do this like twice. And so like but the extra point, it's like, okay, we're still one score away. Like, as we talk about, like, one score. We just need to get the, uh, 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 a touchdown and a two-point conversion and we're, and we're good, right? So it's like there's something about just a psychological feeling that, you know, we are still, like, even though it's just a one-point difference, like, we're much closer in this game uh, than it appears, you know, or it might, might appear statistically, right? And I think that has that has an effect. The, 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 the place I thought you were going to go, which I think is interesting, is that, like, it's almost though by going for two, like, information is is kind of revealed, right? So, like, if you if you go for two and you get it, you now know exactly what you need to take the lead, right? And so, like, you have this, like, new information. And if you don't get it, you also know exactly what you need to do, right? Whereas if you go for if, – if you have the two-point conversion to eat twice, there's, like, all this, like, certainty. But it's, like, you don't have any new information that's been been revealed. So in a way, by, by going for two, you sort of reveal more information earlier in the game that might affect your strategy down the line. That That seems like – kind of an interesting way of looking at it too like a sort of information revealing mechanism yeah i'm, I'm just like running back in my head the uh the real situation in, in the moment that we're in yeah in the, in the in the game and i think i think they were down were they down two touchdowns and then they they scored so it wasn't 15 points it was 14 points they were, they were only down 14 right they were down 14 and then oh, they, that's right. And they wanted to try to to, to get the and win. They were gonna, right, they right. were they were gonna try to like win it, right? So they wanted yeah, to go yeah, for yeah. two first so that they could kick the extra point to win the game. And then if they miss that going for two, they're still down eight. So they can go that's for two the right. second that's time to tie. Was. Right, right, right. It wasn't fifteen, you're right. It was only fourteen. Right. But so you, there's like way. You know, we kind of come back to this question of like, do you play to tie or do you play to win? And I think it makes yeah. sense. You know, they're on the road playing to win the game. You know, I, I like I don't have a problem with that. I, that's how how the Lions would play it too, um, playing to win. And it's a question yeah. is just the sequencing of it, right? Um, do you go for go for two first or go for two? Right, uh, but still, you know. in the fourteen fourteen down versus fifteen down, I think the psychological aspect is still huge, right? Like it's like you miss that field goal, and it's like you know, or you miss the two point conversion, it's like oh. This has been like such a hit to me because you know you know you're going to do it again. You just you just couldn't do it. You just like failed at the the thing that you were trying to do. That right. seems rough. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I'd be interested to see like what the oh I hear I have I have in front of me the actual numbers, okay. <laughs> like the odds for each for each option um, as provided by ESPN. And I mean, this is really yeah, <laughs> this is not doesn't make a big difference whether you whether you go first or go second, but. I mean, there is the issue of playing for a tie versus playing for for a win, which is which is a a big deal and a kind of a philosophical question. And didn't this? My understanding too is this all changed when the extra point went from being like a gimme, like fifteen yarder, to whatever it is now, right? So like that's when the statistics changed, right? Because it's like when it was a no brainer, like you would go for the extra point and take that like certainty. But but when they introduced like a little bit more uncertainty into that being successful, then the math changes because it's like that no longer is a guaranteed, you know, or not point nine, you know, ninety nine percent or whatever 
uh, guaranteed point, it's like now there's more risk in taking the the extra point. Yeah, and I'll just point out that Tampa Bay went, uh, according to this article, 33, 33 for 33 in point after attempts. Okay. So even year. even then, you know, it's still pretty much – I think they should – if they want to, like, really change the NFL, make the extra point, like, really difficult. Like a 60-yard field goal or a 55-yard field goal. That would be, that would make things quite interesting. I believe, by the way, that Belichick was one of the people – who was pushing several years ago to push the the extra point back because he said that this right now this isn't a non competitive play like a fifteen yard field goal is a total joke. I mean even high school kids probably make that most of the time. So like you know why are we even bothering with this? You just either give the point automatically or make it interesting and push it back. They didn't push it back far enough, I don't think, to make it actually interesting. The kind of conclusion from this article that I think sums up the discussion of kicking versus um, going for two when you're in this situation. And basically the logic is, so let's assume you got to score twice, right? You need two touchdowns. So if you kick the point after for both touchdowns, you give yourself no chance of winning in regulation, right? Um, you're just, you're going to play for a tie and, and try to win it in overtime. If you kick the first point after attempt, and then you go for two later, you give yourself a better chance to win in regulation or a chance to win in regulation, but you have a much higher risk of losing the game on that second two point yeah. conversion. With the earlier two point try, the team gives itself one opportunity to win and another opportunity to tie in a situation where getting one is more likely than missing both of those. That's the kind of underlying logic in going for two first and kicking second. We have alienated so many listeners who don't uh, watch football with this segment on the pod. Now, we've also alienated a lot of listeners uh, who don't care about international politics, too. So I guess it's it's okay. Right. I mean, I guess the, <laughs> the difference is, like, do we have a lot of listeners who are just here for the football and not here for the international politics. Right. Um, I guess because how did those people even find us? I think is the, is I guess the that's, we, yeah, we made a, a faux pas in our uh, topic for it's today. A, if we just chess enthusiasts. And it's a weird uh, Venn diagram. Yeah. Like, frankly, it look, it's very complicated, many overlapping circles. So what do you think are the Lions chances on Sunday? Uh, very poor, very poor. I yeah. want them to win. Uh, I think San Francisco is a better team. I mean, they're like a seven point favorite. Right at home, which is not astronomical, but I it's that's it's significant, and um, I think Detroit plays better at home. Uh, I'm I, I'm making that up, but I, I believe that to be true. Just like anecdotally looking at the games, and I, I just you know I think San Francisco is a good team, so I think it's going to be San Francisco. I think Baltimore is going to come through against Kansas City. I think um, you know Kansas City's tough, but I think Baltimore is a better team. And I think it's going to be San Francisco and Baltimore in the Super Bowl. I think Baltimore's going to win in a, in a good game. I'm going to go 27-24 Baltimore in the Super Bowl. All right. Yeah. You heard it here, folks. And I am Mr. Prediction. You know, I, I love prediction, both in sports as well as international politics.